Uh, this is the last um, in this sequence of talks, and I want to look at the, um, the last years of the Buddha's life. But before doing that, I'd like to sort of step back and ask the question, well, what are we looking for when we ask the question, you know, who is the Buddha or who is the Buddha? What are we looking for? I think at some level, and perhaps this is the, the overtly religious nature of this question, is we're looking for uh, someone who is perfect. So if, for example, we happen to be very committed vegetarians, and we have been, in fact, training and studying, let's say, in a... Chinese or a Korean or a, a Japanese school of Buddhism that lays great emphasis on vegetarianism, then we feel that um, uh, our spiritual practice, our, our moral values, our ideas about vegetarianism all seem to fit terribly well together. And the Buddha's emphasis on non-violence and non-harming. But then when we look into the uh, earliest texts, when we begin to uncover who this man uh, was and, and how he actually lived and what he said, we come to the rather unsettling discovery that he definitely was not a vegetarian. <laughs> and um, some Buddhist traditions, particularly the, far, uh, the East Asian traditions, will go out of their way to somehow deny this, that he must have been a vegetarian. Because that is somehow implicit in our notion of what it means to be a perfect person. The problem with the Buddha is that not only did he eat meat, and one could argue, well, he did so simply because he was begging, and beggars can't be choosers. He simply ate what was in his bowl at the time. But we have the even more discomforting fact that when he was once asked to institute vegetarianism as a rule for his monks, he said no. Now, the, the point here is that we, 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 we run into a conflict between what we think the Buddha should be, which is really another way of saying what we, what we ideally would want to be, with the actual evidence presented in the canon itself. If we are, let's say, very passionately committed to environmentalism or ecology, in fact, one of the questions asked earlier on was, what would the Buddha do in the face of global warming? What we're looking for and what we're somehow presupposing is the Buddha must be the perfect ecologist because that is somehow necessary for our ideal of what we value most highly. Or another question that's come up, you know, why doesn't the Buddha object to some of these terrible things that King Persenadi does? And what we're looking for, I think, is um, the Buddha as the perfect human rights activist. But when we look at the texts, like when we look for the perfect vegetarian, we don't find that. We find something rather disconcerting. What we find, in fact, is a human being in a highly ambiguous and complex situation who's doing his best to uh, fulfill his goals on earth during the course of his life. The Buddha is not perfect, or let's say Siddhartha Gautama is not perfect, because Siddhartha Gautama is not God. That Siddhartha Gautama is um, a product, in some senses, of the conditions of his time and place, like we all are. And as is repeatedly taught, the dependent arising, conditionality, contingency. This is not the place where perfection resides. 
the problem with perfection is that it is necessarily unambiguous. Something that is perfect does not allow ambiguity. In other words, it's either totally perfect or it's not perfect at all. So from a religious point of view, I think we seek that perfection. We seek someone to symbolize the ideal of human life for us. And we confuse that with um, the more historical, the more empirical understanding of the life of a particular human being in a particular place at a particular time. Imperfection, of course, is ambiguous. And I think Siddhartha Gautama's life is, in a way, a lesson in ambiguity, not unambiguity. Um, when you look at some of these episodes, um, it, it doesn't, on the face of it, make much, it doesn't seem to fit very comfortably with what you expect. And I wonder if this is not one of the reasons why Buddhist tradition <clears throat> seems to have been rather keen on forgetting this story and replacing it instead with what is essentially a myth. The myth of the prince in the palace who renounces his homeland and becomes the Buddha and then wanders around India teaching widely lots of saffron road monks hanging on his every word and then one day he drops dead having established the Dhamma and the Sangha. That is um, a very appealing myth, but it doesn't really tell us much at all about who this person was. And the other shadow side of it is that it elevates the Buddha or Siddhartha Gautama increasingly to a god-like status. In other words, uh, this idea of perfection, this idea of God, finds its way back into the story by ridding the story of all of these uncomfortable, complex, ambiguous episodes that I'm so keen on telling you. <laughs> and I feel in many ways um, this kind of humanized story of the Buddha is somehow more in keeping with his whole emphasis on suffering, on impermanence, on contingency, that it somehow fits that matrix of values and ideas that does not see the world as um, moving towards some state of finality and perfection. Another image that comes to mind is in Japanese aesthetics, how in a building which may look perfect, nonetheless the architect um, will always include an element of imperfection, a, a tile that is not quite properly glazed, or a piece of wood that does not fit as snugly and neatly as every other piece of wood. There's an acknowledgement in this aesthetic that perfection is in a way a dream, uh, it's an unattainable ideal. And paradoxically, the perfect will always include imperfection too. That that's the kind of world in which we live. And this, I think, is so very central to the Buddha's vision. Um, to, 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 to confront the fact that we live in an imperfect world. And we have to make decisions on the basis of inadequate information. That if we are dependent upon certain powerful figures for our livelihood, our support, we may have to enter into compromise. I mean, a very good example of this is where we ended the story last time, where the Buddha's family, his cousin Mahanama, decides to give his daughter by a slave woman to the king of the land as a wife on the pretense that she is actually a noble woman. Now here the Buddha finds himself in an impossible situation. If he exposes this deceit, his whole um, uh, uh, credibility 
uh, will collapse, his family will effectively bring him down. If he doesn't expose the deceit, then he has to live with the fact that to some extent he's complicit in it. It's, an, it's, it's, it's one, one of these horrible moral dilemmas where you can't win either way. And it all, this actual story somehow um, uh, questions a very uh, well, well-known Buddhist ethical principle, which we find in the first verse of the Dhammapada, which says, thought precedes all things. The mind precedes all things. If you act with a good intention, then happiness will follow you as inevitably as the cart follows the ox that pulls it. If you act from a negative or an unwholesome thought, then suffering will follow you as naturally as a shadow will follow the body. And this has become a rather of a keynote in Buddhist ethics. Uh, you often hear, for example, uh, Buddhist teachers saying, what matters is the intention, the motivation. But in the example I've just given of this complicated situation in Savati, the Buddha's intentions don't have anything to do with it at all. It's social circumstances. It's the maneuvering of political forces that have got him into this state of compromise. It wasn't his choice. He didn't choose to do that. He didn't decide consciously to deceive the king. And yet he's trapped there in a a moral dilemma which does not spring from his own intentions or motives. So this, I think, highlights how um, ethics is not just something that can be reduced to motives. That ethical behavior, moral behavior, is a response, is an action taken in the midst of many conflicting demands both perhaps of yourself, but of course also of all of those around you who are also involved and will be affected by your acts. Again, when you look at uh, Tsongkhapa's, uh, I keep saying Tsongkhapa is the founder of the Geluk School, he, he writes very clearly on this and certainly does not endorse the idea that Buddhist ethics is somehow an ethics of intention or motivation. He recognizes that many factors come into play and an ethical choice arises as a risk once you've taken all of these factors into account and you do your best. You cannot know the outcome. It's impossible. We cannot know the future. So let's now return to this story. We've left the Buddha, or Siddhartha, as I'm going to call him, to give it a much more kind of human face. He's in Savati. He has um, the, the deception, his cousin's deception has been exposed. And although this is not stated explicitly in the texts, we can see quite clearly from reconstructing the uh, later years of his life that he no longer spends any time in Savati, that he needs to seek his support elsewhere. So in other words, he goes into exile. And fortunately, we can date um, one of the uh, suttas, the discourses, uh, it's it's called the Samanapala Sutta, the discourse on the uh, fruits of the wandering life um, to around this period. And so it suggests that perhaps inevitably after being no longer being wel- welcome in Savati, he goes to his next major base of support, which is in Rajagaha, Rajgir. And the Samanapala Sutta, which is the second of the long discourses of the Buddha, describes what happens when he arrives in Rajagaha. It opens with a scene 
of the king of that time, who is now Ajatasattu, the son of Bimbisara. Bimbisara, remember, was the king the Buddha converted just after the Enlightenment, who became a stream entrant. He, Bimbisara was succeeded by his son Ajatasattu. So the sutta, the discourse, opens with Ajatasattu and his ministers sitting on the roof of the royal palace in Rajgir. And they're having a discussion about um, which holy teachers or which spiritual teachers are present at the time and which one it might make sense to go and visit. And it seems as though there's a lot of them there at the time, so different names get mentioned. And then Jivaka, who's the royal physician, he, we mentioned him before, he's one of the contemporaries of the Buddha who studied in Taxila. Jivaka suggests, well, actually, you could come to my mango grove, and there um, the Buddha is staying. Maybe it would be a good idea to go and see him. And so the king says, okay, and they prepare the royal elephants, and off they go uh, by torchlight under the light of the full moon. But as the king um, approaches the mango grove, he starts to feel really um, ill at ease, uh, very um, frightened. And as they go nearer the building where the Buddha's staying, they don't hear any sound at all. And the king turns to his doctor and says, you're not tricking me, are you? I don't hear any sound. Are you sure this man is there? And Jivaka says, don't worry. Uh, they are always silent, these people. It's okay. Go inside that room, the round pavilion, and there you will see the Buddha seated against the central pillar of that place. And so... Ajatasattu goes into the room and there, in fact, the Buddha is. And then they begin to embark on a conversation. And it's at this point that Ajatasattu asks the question that I mentioned before some days ago, so I'll repeat it. And he, he says to the Buddha, look, I've got all of these people in my employment. I've got cooks, I've got elephant handlers, I've got officials. And they're very skilled at what they do. And the result of their work is clearly visible to everyone. You know, if, if the cook is a good cook, then we have good meals. Now, you people, who all you do is wander around and beg and meditate, what is it in your... Uh, what, is, what, what do you have to show? What is visible here and now is the word he uses what is visible here and now as a result of this uh, life you lead, this renunciant life you need. This is very similar to the sort of uh, you know, comment I used to get. You know, my mother, when I came back from India in Tibetan monk's robes, she, she, she said to me, um, well, you know, dear, you can't stay in Nirvana forever. <laughs> In other words, you have to get down and do something that has got visible results here and now, a la Ajatasattu. And so at this um, point, the, the Buddha says, well, look, imagine that you had a slave. And this slave would wake up one morning and say, you know, the king and I, we're both men, we're both human beings, but he lives like a god, and I slave away like an animal. This is clearly unjust. What if I were to shave off my head and my hair and beard, put on a yellow robe and go into the forest and meditate? And so one day he decides to do that. But the uh, chief official of the king finds this out and comes to the king and says, look, one of your slaves has just escaped. And he's going off, he's off, off, off in that forest meditating. And then the Buddha says, well, what would you do in that case, O king? And Ajata said, I would honor that man. I would offer him my support and respect. And then the Buddha says, well, you see, here is a result 
visible here and now of practicing the renunciant life. Now we have to remember that the backdrop to that is the fact that the Buddha has just had his whole operation blown apart by, again, an activity involving a slave, the daughter of the slave woman and her son exposed now. It seems, and also punished probably, it seems that there's a sympathy for the plight of the slave. And as we'll see as this, this discourse continues, it looks as though the Buddha is appealing to the king to free some, at least, of his slaves should they show any interest in the sort of community that the Buddha himself has established. Now, like many suttas, uh, this one is rather long. And in fact, it, the bulk of the middle of the text is, 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 is rather long, rather wordy accounts of how the Buddha's teaching compares favorably with that of other teachers and so on and so forth. And you have to get to the end of the text before the story continues. And after the Buddha has given his discourse to the king, the king then comes up to the Buddha and says, Transgression overcame me. Foolish, erring, and wicked as I was, in that for the sake of the throne, I deprived my father, that good man and just king, of his life. May the Lord accept my confession of my evil deed, that I may restrain myself in the future. Now it could be that this is the first time the Buddha hears of what Ajatasattu has done. In order to get the throne, he um, tried first of all to smuggle a dagger into the king's quarters, his father's quarters, to kill him, but was caught by the guards. But when the king, uh, when he was brought to the king, Ajatasattu said that, you know, I've had enough, I want to be king now. And for some reason or other, Bimbisara agreed, possibly because Ajatasattu had achieved through alliances and so on such power at court that the king was unable to refuse. We don't know. But Ajatasattu was still afraid that even if he were king, if his father remained at liberty, there'd always be the possibility of some sort of counter-coup. So he locked his father up and then slowly started to starve him. Um, I, I, we don't have time, I don't have to go all the details of this story, but basically the king died in prison of starvation. And this is what Ajatasattu here is confessing. So this is the kind of world the Buddha lived in. These were not nice guys. And the Buddha's response to Ajatasattu is since you have acknowledged the transgression and confessed it, I will accept that. For he who acknowledges his transgression and confesses will grow in the noble discipline. Then King Ajatasattu, rejoicing and delighting at these words, rose from his seat, saluted the Buddha, and departed. So in other words, the Buddha somehow absolves the king from his deed. The text concludes with a passage that I think is dubious. As soon as the king was gone, the Buddha said, The king is done for, his fate is sealed, monks. But if the king had not killed his father, then as he sat here, the pure and spotless Dhamma eye would have arisen within him. In other words, he would have become a stream entrant. But to me, that is rather vindictive and also contradictory to what has just been said, and moreover somehow runs against the tenor of the entire text, which essentially is a discourse on forgiveness. The slave escaping, being forgiven. The king admitting to this terrible act, but still somehow being forgiven. 
Forgiveness is not a virtue that is often spoken about much in Buddhism, but I think here you have quite a, a powerful example of that particular strength. And so what I suspect happened is that after the Buddha had been forced to leave Savati, he then settled for some time in Rajgaha, in the bamboo grove. Again, it's difficult to say for how long, but it would seem to be a period of maybe two or three or four years. And then, at some point, and this would probably be when the Buddha would have been about 78 years old, he hears of trouble brewing up north at his homeland. So he returns to Kapilavastu, to where he was born. Or he returns to Shakya. And I think the reason that he would have done that is because of having learnt that the Kosalan army was preparing to invade Shakya to punish the Shakyans for the deception given to the king Persenadi. Now, there's a very, in, a very intriguing sutta. It's the 89th of the middle-length discourses, which is called the Dhamma Chetaya Sutta, the discourse on the, um, the relics or the reliquaries of Dhamma. And this is a very, very curious text. Um, it starts by saying that the Buddha was staying at Metalumpa, which is a town we don't know the exact location of, but somewhere in Shakya, I suspect probably towards the Kosalan border. And then you have um, a dialogue between King Persenadi and his general, who's now Digakarayana. He was the one that was appointed after the murder of Bandula. Bandula's nephew was made head of the army. And these two guys are also not far from Metalumpa, which suggests that, indeed, the army is nearby, on the borders of Shakya. And Persenadi says, why don't we um, go into this park nearby and see if the Buddha's there? And so they take the carriage, go into the park, and there are, and I'll just read now the um, text, and it says, on that occasion, a number of monks were walking up and down in the open, Then King Persenadi went to them and asked where the Buddha was staying. That is his dwelling, great king, says the monks. With the closed door, go up to it quietly, without hurrying. Enter the porch, clear your throat and tap on the panel. The Buddha will open the door for you. So King Persenadi handed over his sword and turban to Digakarayana then and there. And Digakarayana thought, ah... The king is going into secret session now and I have to wait here alone. This is the only time in the entire uh, uh, canon that Digakarayana is actually even mentioned. And he makes this curious... And you're able somehow to read his thoughts. The king is going into secret session now and I have to wait here alone. So... Persenadi goes into the room where the Buddha is and they have a very convivial conversation. In fact, Persenadi, um, who may not have seen the Buddha now for some years, praises him, says, you know, I can't believe it. He says, I got these two uh, chancellors, Isadatta and Purana, and one day we were out on some maneuvers somewhere and they didn't have anywhere to stay. So I said, okay, you can stay in my room. But when they lay down for uh, the night, uh, what did they do? Well, first of all, they asked me, well, where is the Buddha staying now? And I said, well, over that way somewhere probably. So they turned their heads in his direction and had their feet pointing at me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what's extraordinary about these dialogues is that they have a real kind of... uh, They're not the sort of thing you'd make up. They've got a curious ring of human ambiguity and truth about them. And so the king offers all of these praises of the Buddha. And then in the end, the Buddha says, well, but really, king, why have you come to see me? 
And the king replies, well, because you are a katya, you're a member of the ruling class, and I am a member of the ruling class. You are a korsalan, and I am a korsalan. And you are 80 years old, and I am 80 years old. So that since that's the case, I think it proper to honor you and show such friendship. So again, there's a moment here very much of reconciliation between the two men, the monk and the tyrant. And then Persenity, and here the sutta breaks off, and we have to go to um, the Dhammapada commentary where much of this information is found. Persenity leaves the hut, and what does he find? His general has gone, departed, split, vamoose. And he then breaks down. He sees on the far side of the glade uh, an old servant woman and a horse. And the servant woman tells him what has happened. That the general has taken the royal insignia. Remember the text says, King Persenity handed over his sword and turban. Now, in ancient India... The, the king uh, of any land had to carry on his person seven insignia of kingship. Uh, the sword, the turban, the sandals, umbrella, and some other stuff. So Digakarayana, entrusted with the royal insignia, has gone, and he's going now to crown Prince Vidudaba, the son of Persenadi with Vasaba, the daughter of the slave woman. He's going to make him king. So this is the moment at which Digakarayana has probably been waiting for years. This is his moment of revenge for the murder of his uncle. So Persenadi is now abandoned. His general has entered into a coup that has put this son, Vidudaba, on the throne, and Persenadi has no recourse to any comeback. He's isolated. He's abandoned in a forest with a bunch of monks. So what does he do? He gets on the horse, um, and with, together with the servant woman, he heads down south to Rajagaha, where Ajatasattu is king. But what happens is that when he gets to Rajagaha, he finds that the city walls, uh, sorry, the city gates are closed and he can't get in that night. So he lodges in a boarding house just outside the walls and the following morning he's found dead. Again, no details are given. We don't know whether he was bumped off or whether he had a heart attack. Given Ajatasattu's um, record, track record of dealing with elderly relatives, <laughs> one suspects foul play might have been involved. So the Buddha now is more or less, um, uh, you know, he's in a, a critical situation. The, the army is about to invade Shakya. What can the Buddha do? Well, what he does is that he, he and Ananda go to the place where the army is camped and sit beneath a tree on the road that the army would have to take to come into Kapalavastu. And as the army approaches, the first time the Buddha manages to dissuade them from attacking, and the second time he manages to dissuade them, but the third time he can't. And the army proceeds. The Buddha then together with Ananda and maybe a few other monks, leaves Shakya and returns, following in a way Persenadi, back to Rajgaha, to Rajgir, which, remember, is about 300 miles away. It's not next door. And he had to walk. An old man, now he's 78, 79. So he heads down to Rajgaha, and when he arrives in Rajgaha, we then 
have the beginning of what is one of the most famous Buddhist texts called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. The Mahaparinibbana Sutta, or the Discourse on the Great Passing, is the 15th discourse in the longer discourses. And it is one of the rare texts that actually gives us a detailed chronology of events. In this case, the events from the Buddha's return to Rajgaha and his death. Now, um, <clears throat> he gets to Rajgaha. He, he chooses to stay at Vulture's Peak, not at his centre down in the bamboo grove. And the, the, the text opens without any kind of preamble uh, with another um, account of an ensuing conflict. Um, the Buddha is sitting on Vulture's Peak and he sees um, a Brahmin uh, called, what's his name, I've forgotten now. Uh, anyway, the, the, the chief minister of the king uh, comes up to see him. And the chief minister has been given the task by King Ajatasattu to go to the Buddha and to tell him that the king intends to invade the Vajians. And the king says that he will strike them down cut them off and destroy them, bringing them to ruin and destruction. And whatever the Buddha tells you, Brahmin, report that faithfully to me, because Buddhas don't lie. In other words, the Buddha's now been reduced to becoming a sounding board for a warmonger. Ajatasattu wants to invade the Vajians. Now, the Vajian... Um, uh, the Vajians live to the north of the Ganges. Their main city is called Vaishali. And they were the last surviving republic of the Buddha's time. The last confederacy of different clans and tribes who conducted their affairs by assembly. And in fact, if you go to Vaishali today, you can see where they're excavating the assembly hall um, a large assembly hall, the texts say that there were 7,000 members of the assembly. That's probably an exaggeration. But a lot of people. It was, and in fact, in, in modern India, they regard the Vaishali assembly as the origin, not only of Indian democracy, but of democracy. Frequently, Indian politicians go there to you know, get some good publicity. So the Buddha um, uh, replies to Vasakara, is the name of the Brahmin. Um, and basically the Buddha says, look, if the Vajians maintain harmony amongst themselves, if they respect their elders, if they perform the rites of their society, if they um, make offerings to the shrines and support monks, and he, out, he outlines about seven conditions um, according to which the Vajians will remain prosperous and peaceful. In other words, if they stick together, if they maintain a coherent uh, policy in the face of opposition, they will be strong enough to resist you. And Vasakara's response is, well, in that case, we probably won't defeat them by force of arms. We'll only be able to defeat them by propaganda. In other words, by sowing dissent, divide and rule within the assembly itself. And then Vasakara says, well, thanks very much. I'm off. And he disappears. He goes back to the king. Um... The Buddha then turns to Ananda and says, in the same way, if, uh, as the Vajians would prosper if they maintain these seven principles, likewise this community here, my community of the Sangha, also should abide by a similar set of values. So it's a clear indication of how the Buddha was modelling his community 
on a uh, democratic model, on a representative form of governance, rather than by appointing a successor. You see, the Buddha, when he dies, makes it repeatedly clear that he's not going to appoint a successor. That the Dhamma, he says, will be your teacher. In other words, he wants a community, a Sangha, that is governed not by the authority of any particular leader, but rather by uh, discussion and debate, possibly even consensus amongst its members, that accord to the principles that he has laid down. That, I think, is a very important point. At this point, though, realizing that he probably can do nothing further to um, achieve much in, in Rajgaha, it seems now that he's also not respected so much there, he then returns the way he's come. Having made this long journey, he now goes back. And the Mahaparinibbana Sutta is a description of this last journey. He first of all returns to the Ganges, and there's a famous passage in which he, he sees the fortifications being built on the southern banks of the Ganges, at Patali, which is now Patna. And he says, ah, this will be a very great city very great place, its power will extend far and wide, which of course it does because Pataliputta, as it then is known, becomes the capital of the Mauryan Empire from which Ashoka rules the whole of India he then leaves Pataliputra, he crosses the river to um, probably the little town of Uchela and then he makes his way to Vaishali, which I've just mentioned was the capital of that last surviving confederacy, now under serious um, threat. An attack from the south is now imminent. And the Buddha decides to spend his last... Well, the Buddha decides to spend the rains, the monsoon, in Vaishali. But curiously, it seems that his, his standing in Vaishali seems to have taken a bit of a blow too. Because he doesn't stay in his normal place, which is called the Mahavan, the forest, where he had a place called the gabled house. He doesn't stay there at all. He stays instead in the pleasure ground of the chief courtesan of the town called Ambapali. And again, there's lots of... I mean, we don't have time to go into all the detail here, but it's a very moving moment. He's reduced, in a way, now to staying effectively in a, in a sort of rural brothel. <laughs> Which, of course, from a Christian mindset, immediately evokes resonances of Mary Magdalene and so on. Uh, and I find Ambapali a very, very intriguing figure, although she doesn't appear a great deal. And then when, the, when, the, when it comes time for the rains retreat itself... Uh, the Buddha is recorded as saying, now, those of you who are with me, you'll have to go and find supporters in the town who can put you up for the rains. He doesn't have a base anymore, basically. And he says, well, I'm going to go spend the rains in Belova, which is a small village actually outside the city walls. And so he goes there. And during this last, um, or during this rains, he becomes very, very ill. Um, recent research by a monk in Sri Lanka who used to be a medical doctor suggests that he might have suffered an intestinal infarction, which is a kind of rupturing of the intestine, um, <clears throat> which would have been fairly common uh, in a man of his age at that time in that place. But he recovers, and he survives till the end of the rains, and then Ananda comes to see him. And this is what Ananda uh, says when he recounts his feelings about the Buddha's almost fatal illness. He says, My body was like a drunkard's. I lost my bearings and things were unclear to me because of your illness. 
The only thing that comforted me was the thought, the Buddha will not pass away until he has made the final arrangements for the order of monks. And the Buddha says, but Ananda, what do the monks expect of me? I have taught the Dhamma Ananda, making no distinction between inner teachings and outer teachings. I have no closed fist in respect of doctrines. If there's anyone who thinks I shall take charge of the order, then let him make the final arrangements for the order, but I do not think in such terms. Ananda, I am now old, worn out. I have traversed life's path. I'm 80 years old. Just as an old cart is kept going by being held together with straps, so my body is kept going by being strapped up. Only in deep meditation does my body find comfort. Therefore, Ananda, you should live as islands unto yourselves, being your own refuge, with no one else as your refuge, with the Dhamma as an island, with the Dhamma as your refuge, with no other refuge. This is a famous passage. But it's interesting to see it in context. Uh, This is a point at which things seem to be falling apart. Not only in the Buddha's own community, in in Kosala, in Rajgir, in Vaishali, he doesn't seem to have any support left at all. The only monks we know to be with him at this time are his two cousins, Ananda and Anuruddha. And effectively he's saying, well, when the chips are down, then the only refuge you have is yourself. You should be an island to yourself. And again, the English, be an island unto yourself, um, fails to communicate that the word used in Pali is simply the word utter, self. He says, yourself is your refuge. The Dhamma is your refuge. So in other words, he's saying two things. He's saying, ultimately, you have to depend upon your own experience. And you, have, and you can only depend upon the Dhamma to the extent to which it is integrated into your own experience. And it's, it's striking that he says, you know, he doesn't say to depend, take refuge in the Sangha or take refuge in the Buddha. No, just the Dhamma. And this, I think, is, is an important point because we want to, if we go back to that opening idea, we're looking for the Buddha, we want the Buddha to be the perfect person. But in fact, we're looking in the wrong place. The question should not be, what would the Buddha do if? What would the Buddha do in dealing with Mr. Mugabe? That's not the appropriate question. We can't take refuge in the Buddha to solve that problem. We can only take refuge in the Dhamma. In other words, the the set of principles and values and practices and ideas that the Buddha bequeathed to his community and to the world, that is where we need to look. In other words, how do we deal with our contemporary crises? It's not much point looking at the Buddha's example because he was dealing with issues in his time. How do you and I respond to these conditions on the basis of the values and the principles that the Buddha laid down? In other words, a Buddhist response would be one that springs from our integration of the values and the principles and how we then apply them in a highly specific condition, namely that of the present time. And that, I think, is so much the legacy. And then the very last passage in that um, section, in that that, uh, paragraph, he says, and those who in my time or afterwards live like this, they will become supreme if they are keen to learn it's a very brief passage. It's translated in different ways. But again, the, the message is quite clear that you have to work these issues out for yourselves. You can't just appeal to some authority figure. 
So after the rains are over, uh, the Buddha continues to head northwest to what looks very much like an attempt to return back to his homeland, which by that time may already have been destroyed. That what happened, um, again, the date, we can't, we, it's impossible to say whether it was at the very end of the Buddha's life or shortly after his death. I think it was probably before he died. That the Korsalan army does, in fact, invade Shakya and it effectively does what we would now call ethnic cleansing. It kills all of the nobility just wipes them out, burns down the towns, the villages, and just lays waste to the entire place. Some escape further east into Moria, which might even be the Kathmandu Valley. It's difficult to say. But basically, Shakya was no more. And the Buddha, nonetheless, is now heading back there, heading back in that direction. They proceed, and the, the text talks of them proceeding through a number of villages and towns until they get to a place called Pava. And it's at Pava that uh, the Buddha eats his last meal. <clears throat> they stay in the, in the garden of a man called Kunda the blacksmith. And Kunda the blacksmith um, invites the Buddha and the monks who are with him for... Um, a meal the next day in which he is going to offer them a dish called Sukra Madhava which means literally um, tender pig which because of, on the basis of some other passages similar to that I think was probably a kind of tenderized pork now as you might not be surprised, the vegetarian lobby <laughs> tries to get round this and talks of them as being obviously some kind of mu- uh, mushroom or truffle. <laughs> <laughs> that may be the case, but the, pro- the fact is that no traditional commentator for centuries ever questioned that this was anything other than tenderized pork. So uh, the Buddha and his monks go to Kunda's grove and are ladled out uh, this delicious meal. But the Buddha says, wait a minute, wait a minute. He says, Kunda, give me the tenderized pork. Don't let any of the monks touch it. And then the Buddha eats the tenderized pork. And having eaten it, he said, "Uh, Kunda, take the rest of the tenderized pork and bury it in a pit. So in other words, he realizes there's something wrong with it. So the tenderized pork is buried in the pit. And shortly thereafter, the Buddha experiences um, severe severe diarrhea. Uh, He's lying on the ground, writhing in pain. Now, again, was uh, was someone trying to poison him? That's certainly a possibility, especially given this rather curious don't give the, 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 the meat to anybody else. Bury the rest of it. I wonder, in fact, if in, by eating that food he was actually protecting his other monks because he knew that he was probably dying anyway and that his teaching, if it were to survive, and at that time that must have seemed fairly up in the air, would it survive at all, then he eats that poisoned food himself. And it's now only from here, um, from Pava, uh, he then says to Ananda, let's go to Kusinara. Kusinara, or Kushinagar, as it's now called, is uh, 17 kilometers from uh, Pava. You can go to Pava now, it's not called Pava, it's called something poor. And it's a rather charmless Indian Muslim town. And they're, they're, they're currently excavating a stupa in, right in the middle of that town, which 
is the place where the Buddha would have been offered his last meal. So it's amazing. You can actually go to these places now. They get as far as Kusinara. Now, what is significant about Kusinara? Kusinara was the home base of Bandula, the former military commander of Kusala that Persenadi murdered. And again, there may be a link here. Perhaps the Buddha was going there. It was the only place left where he had supporters. In this case, Bandula's widow, called Malika. So he makes it as far as Kusinara. He asks Ananda to prepare a bed for him between two sal trees, which Ananda does. And then a number of events occur, one of which I mentioned, his receiving of the last disciple called Subhadda and telling him that that if, if, if he that, that any teaching that contains the doctrine of the eightfold path that he can rely upon as the word of the Buddha, and then, as we've probably heard, he utters his final um, teaching, which is Vaya Dhamma Sankara Apamadena Sampatita. All conditioned things break down. Tread the path with care. Uh, famously translated by Rice Davis as, um, uh, what is it? Condition things are impermanent. Work out your salvation with diligence. Um, there's no word for salvation in there at all. And in fact, Rice Davis is um, referring to one of Paul's letters to the Ephesians, where Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling which, of course, Kierkegaard picks up. So it's not a very good translation, although it's very well known. But it means, sampatita means uh, something like tread the path with care, with apamada, with diligence, with heedfulness, with care. And then the Buddha dies. Now, the, the canon um, does not stop there, but it then goes on in quite some detail of the events which lead up to the first council which takes place about six months later, again, back in Rajgaha, south of the river. So Ananda and Anuruddha and all of these guys, they have to make this trek again. If you just think of the amount of miles that they're covering, it's extraordinary. But that is what uh, happens, that they are able to convene in Rajgaha and um, there the Ananda recites the suttas, the discourses. Uh, Upali recites the, uh, the Vinaya. And that, in a way, is what lays the foundations for what we now call Buddhism. But when you try to imagine yourself actually back in that time and place, with all of that violence going on all around... You, it would have been difficult, I think, for anyone to say, uh, you know, this teaching, this community, this is going to survive. It might have done. But I would have imagined that many of those people would have been fairly uncertain as to what on earth the future holds. And what's curious is when they get down to Rajgir, they um, learn that, Raj, that Rajgaha is just about to be attacked by another king, a man called Pajota the Cruel, from <laughs> a place called Avanti. In other words, war is breaking out everywhere. And um, what I think is remarkable is that in a way, you can almost see the last years of the Buddha's life as a kind of failure in a strange way. And yet... Of course, in terms of history, it was an extraordinary success, a triumph. I mean, who, it, it's equivalent to today. Um, someone's religious discourses and advices and counsels and stories would be actively remembered and studied in the year 4400 AD, two and a half thousand years from now. I find it hard to imagine that happening. And yet that is 
strangely and remarkably was the fate of these remembered discourses, the rules of this community, which survive right now, and here we are talking about them. But it's at this point uh, that the historic record abruptly cuts off. In fact, the only historic record we have of that period is found in the Buddhist texts. Once the Buddhist texts end with the First Council, we hear that there's no evidence of what happened next until we get to the edicts of Ashoka, about 150 years later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.